Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. What is God saying? Notice there's no, hey, I will meet you halfway. There's none of that. God says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll forgive you. Do you enjoy a good love story? You know, the kind where she fights his affection, but he remains true. And in the end, her heart softens towards him and they unite to live happily ever after. Not a real story, you say? Well, you'd be surprised. There are some strong parallels between the classic love story and that of God's love for us. You'll see when Dr. Corbett opens Jeremiah chapter 32 tonight, I will give them one heart and one way. All right, please turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. And we're looking from verse 36 down to verse 44. So the end of the chapter. This section is the third section we've been looking at. This is the the section that that Jeremiah is introducing the new covenant. The new covenant is that covenant that we now enjoy because of what Jesus Christ has done. So Jeremiah 32, we're reading from verse 36. Now therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Now, they're the three things that Jeremiah was prophesying was going to come. Uh, They don't sound pleasant at all. And um, we've seen that Jeremiah has said this is the consequence, this is the result, not of God changing his attitude towards you, but of you changing your attitude toward God. This is the consequence of you walking away from God. And we read in the next verse, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. I want you to hear two things here. I want you to hear God's heart how does God feel when people rebel who claim to know him? Angry, thank you. Now this is a real shock, I think, to people who have Santa Claus theology. Santa Claus theology is the idea that God never gets angry, he never gets upset. I want you to hear God's heart here, because I, I think there are thousands of people who think God doesn't mind how they live. I think there are people out there who have this attitude that not only does God not care how they live, God is somebody who really is going to ignore everything this person, these people have ever done and let them into heaven anyway. I reckon there's a whole bunch of people that think that way. Now, if he did, would he ever get angry at sin? No, why would he? And look at the verse we've just read. It says here, I drove them out in my anger, in my wrath, with great indignation. I've never experienced anyone who's expressed great indignation. There is something going on in the heart of God here. Now, if this was all the picture we had of God... Wow. He'd be, as some atheists describe God, he would be a monster. 
if this was the only picture we had of God. But it's not all that the verse says about God, is it? Do you see the last bit of this? I will bring them back into this place and I will make them dwell in safety. Why would he do that? I said there's two things I want you to see in this verse about God and they both reveal something about his heart. One is God hates sin. Make no mistake about it. God hates sin. And if you want to do an interesting Bible study on that, you'll actually find that expression doesn't occur in the Bible. What you'll find is that when you sin, God hates it. God hates it when we sin. Okay, so that should tell us something. I've learned as a husband that one of the best things I can do as a husband is to understand what my wife loves and at least like it. Understanding what the... If you love someone, you'll understand what they love and you will at least try to try to like it. Now, if you see me limp today... It's because we went bushwalking on Friday, hiking through the snow. Kim's smile was from ear to ear. She was so happy. Very happy. She was racing up Marion's lookout. I, on the other hand, (laughs) was trudging through knee-to-waist-deep snow, asking myself this continual question. Why am I doing this? (laughs) And the answer that I got every time I asked that question was, because I love Kim. And for the most part, for the most part, I didn't complain. As I did until I saw Kim down, like we had to abandon. We got into a snow blizzard and I bravely said, no, let's go on. And Kim said, no, I think we should abandon. I said, okay. And... Uh, <laughs> so we did we got up as far as we could go we were, we were just knee to waist deep in snow I was actually more chest deep but it was, it was so difficult and we, we abandoned the wall we, we're coming back down and I saw Kim fall down and as Jeff and I you know, on our last walk with, with Kim you know, we, we continually ribbed Kim about being such a princess on the walk is that right brother Jeff I think you were the one who gave her the most stick about being a princess so we had a job of a time on that last walk and there's, there's Kim falling down. Of course, we were the manly men and so Kim would fall down and we'd go, come on, princess, get up. And uh, anyway, Kim fell down Friday and I just yelled out, just sort of like a reflex trigger that Jeff had planted in my mind. <laughs> come on, princess, get up. And as I took my next step, I fell over. <laughs> and as I fell, my knee went through, my, my whole foot went through the snow and landed really, really hard on a rock. <laughs> so I have a hurty knee. <laughs> yeah, I, people are going, and who's the princess? Yeah, it's like... <clears throat> anyway, I'm going to come back to that story because it actually illustrates something in this passage, I think. Because I was doing that because I love Kim. I love Kim. There's no one on this planet I love more than Kim. And Kim loves this, so I will at least try to like this. (laughs) Because I love her. Now, if you love God, 
you will at least not do what he doesn't like. If you love God, you will do what he loves. If you love God, you will at least try to like what God says. You know what that looks like? It looks like a, a recent Wheaton graduate. Wheaton is a, is a major Bible college, a seminary, theological college in Illinois. And a recent graduate from there, and I heard Bill Heibel say this, said, when I started off my three or four year degree program here, I had a secret. And I kept the secret from everyone. By about the third year, I was really battling with my secret. And now that I've graduated and I've been asked to give the speech on behalf of the students, I want you to know my secret. Ever since I was a little boy, he said, I've been attracted to other boys. And as I grew up, I thought those feelings would go away. And I started Bible college in the hope that if I just got more and more of God's word and theology and heard more about God, those feelings would go. But he said they haven't. And I've battled with them. He said, but as I've come to know God and as I've come to know his word, I know that God hates sexual sin. And because I love God, this Wheaton Bible College graduate said, I know for me to act on the urges that I have would dishonour God. Therefore, even though I battle with this, I love God more than what I want. That is really cool. That's, that's a beautiful thing, to have that kind of sensitivity to God, to be able to say, this is really what I want, what I feel, but you know what? Your feelings aren't the best gauge of what's right and wrong for your life. Did you know that? We'll, we'll, we'll deal more with this. I want you to come back to this text and, and see something about God here. Yes, God hates sin. Why does God hate sin? It is his arch enemy. It's not a person. The arch enemy of God is not a person. It's an action. It's a thing. It's an attitude of rebellion against God. Why? Because sin, sin is really saying, I am my God. I am my God. Remember what the original temptation of the devil, Satan, in the Garden of Eden was? The day you eat of this, you shall become like God. You'll become your own God, knowing right from wrong. In other words, the lie of Satan is you don't need God to worship. You don't need God to tell you what is right or wrong. You can do that for yourself. You can worship yourself and you can determine what's right or wrong. And I think that lie continues today. And God hates it. He hates it. But God loves us. And here's, here's the most beautiful expression in the next verse. Verse 38. This is a wedding expression. Literally a wedding expression. The expression, I am yours and you are mine, is what is said at a wedding. And here God says, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. What does this tell us about the heart of God? 
Well, we read on the next verse, verse 39. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. And I know that there are some people that really struggle with this. Hang on, if God is all loving and all forgiving and all gracious, why on earth would he want us to fear him? And I can only begin to explain to you that when God uses certain words that we use, we use words like hate, we use words like fear, we use words like angry, and we, we couch it in our experience. When someone's angry at you, they don't intend any good for you. <laughs> when someone hates you, they don't intend any good for you. And when someone demands that you fear them, it's not in your interest that they're thinking. And if we can somehow put all of those kind of baggage, that, that, that kind of definition away and begin to look, but what does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean when it says God is angry? It's, it's almost impossible for us to conceive that when God is angry, it's because he loves deeply. He cares deeply. When God says he hates something, it's not because he wants to destroy someone. It's because... He, he, his reputation, his character, his heart has been broken. Someone said when you break the laws of God, it's not the laws of God that you're breaking. It's the heart of God that you're breaking. And if you can understand this word fear, so that it means something like we don't treat God flippantly. I would never say, or in reference to God, the old man upstairs. I, I just I don't want to be flippant with God. This is why I was saying before, please, you may hear from God. And if you do, share that humbly. Don't, don't talk like God seeks your advice. <laughs> you know, God was asking me the other day what he should do in the Middle East. So I told, I said, I said, I said, don't talk, don't do that. Don't talk flippantly. There's a fear that's closer to the English word respect. Deep respect for God. We don't live in a respect culture. We just don't. You know what the Bible actually says we who are seated in a room should do when an elderly grey-haired person walks into that room? You know, we're supposed to stand up sign of respect there's a few of you going oh does it now a few, I just saw a few grey haired people go oh I could use that one it used to be in Australia in the 1950s that if a bus had every seat taken and a pregnant woman got on that bus men would stand up and make the seat available Apparently that doesn't happen now. I remember driving with my mum down the Princess Highway from Melbourne back to Geelong and she got a flat tyre, pulled the car over and I remember saying, Mum, what are you doing? She said, just wait, son. You'll see. And in about two minutes, a truck driver pulled over. Came over and said, how can I help? She said, I've got a flat tyre, which was obvious, but flat tyre. She said, let me change it for you. You know, the last time I saw that was in the 1960s. <laughs> we don't live in a respect culture. 
When we talk about respecting God, we don't have a lot of frame of reference for it, do we? When we talk about respecting the elderly, when we talk about respecting the unborn, Christians shouldn't talk that way. I will give them one heart, verse 39, one way that they may fear me forever for their own good. If we had the time, we'd really labour that one. And for the good of their children after them. Verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So this is what God does when you become a Christian. Christianity is the new covenant. Now I want to introduce a word here. It's the biggest word you'll hear all day. It's a word you've probably never used. It's probably a word you'll never use again. But it's an important word to know. Because if you went through those four verses that we've just read and you underlined or highlighted or circled the word I, 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 who's talking here? God. What is God saying? I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. Notice there's no, hey, I will meet you halfway. Come on, you do your part of the deal. There's none of that. God says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll forgive you. I'll restore you. I will reach out and do you good. I, I, I. Here's the word. It's, it's the word monergism. It comes from two words. Mono, meaning one. Urges. You've heard the word ergonomics. or Work. Mono, monergism. It's the work of one. Now, for those people that have done any theological study, this will come up. This word comes up because it's a beautiful word. Our salvation, our forgiveness from God, our peace with God, is because God is monergistic. In other words, he's done all the work. And right now there should be something in you that, that you just draw, your knees should be dropping to the ground and going, oh, I'd do it, except I've got a hurty knee. Oh, God, thank you that you've done all the work. You've done it all. Thank you. It means the work of one. In the theological sense, it means that our salvation is the work of God alone. And I know this shouldn't be a surprise to any of you here, but there are some people that say, God's done his bit, now you've got to do your bit. God's done all he can do, now you've got to do... God only helps those who help themselves. But God helps those who can't help themselves. So here's the really good news about this word monogism. You may not feel you can change. You may not feel you can change so that you can convert to Christianity, but there is really good news, and it's the word monogism. You just have to come to God and say, God, I can't do this. I can't become a Christian. My life's too far gone. My mind is too messed up. I've done too much stuff. I need your help. Oh man, what a beautiful prayer that is. What a beautiful prayer. God has done all the work needed to help you to have a new future. Your future 
does not have to be defined by your past. God can give you a new future. We read in this verse that God can give you a new heart and a new life, a new way, one way, one heart and one way with a new future. And we see in this passage, if we could just run ahead in the story, that Israel indeed did experience sword, famine and pestilence. But then God did restore them to the land. And what God did with Israel is a picture of what he can do in your life. You may feel utterly, utterly damaged. You may feel you've gone too far. You may know someone who thinks they've gone too far. But God can restore them. God can bring them back. Verse 41, I will rejoice in doing them good. That should tell you something about God too. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all and all my soul. Wow. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Last verse. Fields shall be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah and in the cities of Negev. For I will restore the fortunes, declares the Lord. So this chapter has a beautiful symmetry to it. You remember it opened up with Jeremiah buying that land from his cousin. And now we come to the close of this chapter. And God says, you did that for a reason, Jeremiah, because one day that will happen again. It's a prophetic sign. Now here's the the wonderful news. These people thought, well, we'll come to what they thought in a moment. But these people had rebelled so far against God, yet God in his mercy and grace says, I'll restore them. This should tell us that no one, no one is beyond the reach of God's love and grace. No one. No one. What are you going to do if the most notorious sinner in Tasmania walks into this church next Sunday? What are you going to do? What are you going to do if your worst enemy walks in next Sunday? Bring it a little bit closer to home. Gee, I didn't get a lot of response then. (laughs) What are you going to do if that person, that whenever you see them walking down the streets of Launceston, you just cross over to the other side of the road, they come next Sunday? Because God tells us what he's done. He's reached out to them. Wow, man. The history of humankind is the greatest love story, not that's being told, that is being told. And it's the story of God pursuing a people that he loves, even though the people reject him. God put himself way out of his comfort zone to reach us. Way out to reach us. Wow. Well... Here's Jeremiah delivering this word. How did his original audience respond? You know, his original audience responded by saying, "Uh, you got it wrong, Jeremiah, we're not that bad. (laughs) 
You got it wrong, Jeremiah. None of this will happen. And yet Jeremiah has been like, if you can understand the expression, a skilled doctor. A skilled doctor. Imagine someone going for their medical checkup and the doctor gets, gets the test results and says to them, I think you need to sit down. I sit down and the doctor says, you're not well. And they say to the doctor, what are you talking about? I'm not well, I feel great. And the doctor says, no, I don't care how you feel. These results clearly show there is something wrong with you. And pulls out the x-rays and shows the scans. And the person looks at it and goes, I don't understand. I, I feel okay. He says, don't trust your feelings. These facts are the facts. You are not well. Imagine if the doctor said, that'll be all, just pay the receptionist on the way out. And that's not a skilled doctor. And God, like a skilled doctor, has diagnosed the problem accurately. None of us, without Christ, none of us are in a good position. Even though you may feel like you are. And this is what his original audience did. They disagreed with Jeremiah's diagnosis. But this is not where God leaves it. Like a skilled doctor, God not only diagnosed their problem, he's given them the one remedy. The one remedy. And we live in an age that says, well, I, don't, I think that's arrogant to say there's only one remedy. I want seven options, please. You know what? When you're dying and you haven't got long to live, one's pretty good. And God says in the key verse that we looked at, I will give them one way. One way. So here's the question. Have you accepted God's diagnosis of your condition? And have you experienced his remedy? And if you have, let's tweak this question a bit. Are there those that you're praying for to accept God's diagnosis and God's remedy? Let's come back to our title. I will give them one heart and one way. Who is that way? Jesus Christ said in John 14 verse 6, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I will give them one heart and one way. You may not feel you can change your life to convert to Christ, but there's good news. God's done all the work needed to help you to have a new future. God can give you a new heart. No one is beyond his reach of love and grace. More from Dr. Corbett next week with Call to Me. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, I Will Give Them One Heart, are available via the website, findingtruthmatters.org, or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For regular updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. 
Dr. Corbett is pastor of the Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.